Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my usual medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have special guest, MCHD Paramedic, Lily Trust-Claire. Hello, again. And hello, everybody out there listening on YouTube or watching on YouTube. We have a podcast, like many others, that are really my favorites that are brought to us uh, from the field due to calls by medics. You guys probably get sick of me saying that, but... Those are the best ones. I, you know, my ideas are just my ideas. But when they come from the field, from patient interactions, from actual MCHD protocols, they just make for the best discussion and the best insight. And it's something that if Lily has a question about and she brought this idea, I can guarantee you that other MCHD medics out there have had the same thoughts and are looking at the same FOMED resources and and had the same the same questions. So Lily sent me an email several weeks ago, centered around our hyperkalemia treatment protocol, which was sort of, I don't know, serendipitous, time appropriate as we just presented our hyperkalemia data at the National Association of EMS Physicians uh, 2022 meeting out in San Diego. And she asked a question about BRASH, B-R-A-S-H. And BRASH was not a syndrome that existed when Dr. Dixon and I trained way back in the uh, Middle Ages. We treated hyperkalemia actually differently then than we do now. I, I didn't give albuterol for hyperkalemia when I was in residency. This has all developed uh, being very aggressive with hyperkalemia over the last 15 years or so. If you listen to MCRIT or PUMCRIT, Dr. Weingart, Dr. Farkas, they have, I think, were the coiners of the term brash to talk about the unstable hyperkalemic patients. And the BRASH stands for bradycardia, renal failure, AV block with or without AV blocking meds like beta blockers, shock, and hyperkalemia. So we'll go backwards. Hyperkalemia, shock, AV blocking meds, renal failure, and bradycardia. And that's that's BRASH syndrome. And when Lily sent me this email, I thought, well, is, you know, is BRASH really an applicable topic for the MCHD medic? And I turned that one over in my head for a few minutes and realized that, number one, yes, to be aware. I think it's always vital. But if you look at our protocol and think about how our protocol is structured, really how you and I approach hyperkalemia in the ED as well, this shouldn't be anything new to the MCHD medic, Lily. And, and Tell the listeners, this is a little bit of a review. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but we're going to take this in a couple of different directions and go a little deeper in hyperkalemia and some of the treatments and some of the danger spots. Tell the listeners who we treat for hyperkalemia here at MCHD and how we initiate the protocol. Uh, typically, it's someone who has a history of ESRD, maybe has missed a dialysis appointment or two, uh, someone who's potentially in DKA. Uh, those who essentially uh, are suspicious of having uh, hyperkalemia. Right. And uh, some of the things that clue us into that is not only just the medical history, um, but also their presentation, be it like um, ECG changes, sure. you have widening QRS, you have uh, peak T waves, bradycardia, um, and of course you have your just generalized clinical suspicion. So it takes two pieces, what Lily just described. It takes the EKG and it takes clinical concern. The real reason why that's important is because hyperkalemic 
complaints can be all over the place. They can be weakness. They can be dizziness. They can be vagomas. I mean, this is, this is a really tough diagnosis to make. And I think that's evidence. There's no one piece of diagnostic information. It has to be the whole case put together with the suspicious EKG to really get your focus on this and get you to, to treat this. And when we wrote the protocol, we wrote it specifically with the thought process that without the obvious potassium value, we're not going to diagnose hyperkalemia new onset in the field. That's just too much to ask without a lab draw. But if the patient, like Lily said, has missed dialysis for two weeks and their nausea, their vomiting, their muscle cramps, and they have EKG changes. So you have a clinical concern, a clinical history consistent with hyperkalemia, and EKG findings, then we can enter into the protocol. So that takes us back to brash. If you think about bradycardia, wide complex, peak T waves, shock, an unstable patient, renal failure, there's your clinical concern. You've got an AV block. That is an EKG change that will be consistent with with hyperkalemia, then we can treat within that protocol. So b basically, to me, BRASH describes a concerning patient that would be squarely in the crosshairs of the hyperkalemia protocol if you pick them up. That's really where I, as I turned it over in my head, I came back to 360 degrees around the, the circle of, yeah, that's a patient that we should and hopefully would treat within our service. But the idea of coining the term and creating the framework for recognizing a brash patient, you know, kudos to, to Weingarten Farkas for bringing that forward into FOMED and, and, and making that patient a little more visible for us and easier to remember. When we treat that patient, Lily, I'm going to put you on the spot. Number one, don't overthink it because none of these treatment pieces for the hyperkalemia protocol are super harmful, which med goes first always, every single time. Calcium 100%. Yeah. Why? Stabilizes the myocardium, guys. We've got to do that first and foremost. Uh, I will go back to what you said a little bit, Casey, and say I have been burned more than once on a bradycardic patient where I didn't consider this right up at the top of the differential. I always consider it, and I always rule it out or just treat it uh, because it's, it's not uncommon. It's not as uncommon as you would think to see a symptomatic hypotensive bradycardic patient and you think, gosh, are they, have they taken too much of their beta blocker? And oops, you get their lab back, their potassium is 7.6. And, and honestly, this is one for me. This was, this was a protocol that, I don't know that it was my idea per se. This is one that was brought to us by medics who said, hey, we've got these peri-arrest patients that are clearly hyperkalemic. Dr. Patrick, look at these EKGs. Yeah. And probably three of them in six months. We've told that story on here before. But the other piece during my education, you can speak to this. Lily, I know you had these cases early on when you were working your way up in the service. You have those cases that are just burned into your brain that are that are impactful for various reasons. Sometimes because they're saves, sometimes, sometimes and more often for me, when you have bad outcomes or you make maybe not the best decision, I can remember, I can, I could walk you to the room right now in the emergency department in Indianapolis where I took care of this patient almost 20 years ago that was a fairly stable-looking end-stage renal disease patient, missed dialysis, wide complex, peak T waves, 
just a classic brash type patient before brash was even coined. And I went back to my computer, ordered my hyperkalemia treatment protocol meds, and went on to see the next patient in her cold blue in room seven. And literally beside the bed on the bedside uh, cabinet, the rolling cabinet with the gauze pads and the alcohol prep pads and all that stuff in it that the nurses have was the yellow box of calcium sitting right there. And if that had been pushed, I don't think the patient would have arrested him. And that's, that's the point for calcium being first is it's immediate, immediate myocardial stabilization. I think what's great about it is that it's almost like a, like a pause button for these kinds of patients. It gives you a little bit of time to, to establish the other treatments and, and then focus on uh, trying to shift that potassium in, intracellularly, but also get them to the hospital alive, where <laughs> potentially. They can, where they can get emergent dialysis. Right. Yeah. which is ultimately what they need. So all these other things, guys, are temporizing, the calcium being the most important. And I'll echo that first story, and it was we told it, I don't think you can tell it enough times, is that our mechs came to us and said, why do I have to wait till they cardiac arrest to treat them in our, under our protocol? And they were exactly right. So That's why this protocol exists. So that leads us in, I'll pass it back to you. Why does hyperkalemia cause rhythm changes in the first place? Let's go to, back to a little bit of physiology and think about what we're actually treating and why that happens. Yeah, we're not going to go too deep. We're just going to go a little bit deep. So, I mean, most of the potassium belongs in the cells. Understand most of it is intracellular, and it really doesn't belong. Sodium belongs outside the cells, and it's that exchange of the sodium-potassium exchange that really makes our nerves, our muscles work, makes the system, makes the world go round. And potassium at high levels extracellularly is a very potent sodium channel toxin so it boils down to it's just a sodium channel toxin just like we'd be sitting here talking about a tca or some other sodium channel toxin it poisons that ability of the cell to excite and to depolarize and repolarize so we'll go back a little bit and talk about Vaughn williams i don't think it's terribly pertinent here however it's on every test you'll like ever take as a paramedic and a doctor and a nurse and you will learn it you'll memorize it and then you'll forget it, and like me, you'll have to look it up. But one through four, uh, beta block, I'm sorry, sodium channel blockers, beta blockers, potassium channel blockers, and then calcium uh, channel blockers. And it kind of puts these medicines into separate categories according to their mechanism and, and what channels they affect. Now, later on, you're going to talk about our friend amiodarone, which is really kind of like I've heard it described as like the garbage can of uh, medications for this because really it has effects at many of those channels. It's really quite quite interesting drug. Let's start with the case first and then we'll yeah. get into why I hate amiodarone, which is not the title of the podcast, but maybe. Yeah, please don't make that the title of the podcast. We don't want like amiodarone people hating on yeah, us. It's, it's generic now. I think we're safe. Back okay. in <laughs> back in 2000, we might have gotten in trouble with the, with right. the quarterone reps. We um, would have. But let's take, let's take a patient. Let's take an 88-year-old with general weakness, some nausea, some vomiting, Poor PO intake, so a lot of vagomas, as Dr. Dixon said, some abdominal pain and cramping, and you've got a systolic pressure of 100, and you've got a heart rate of 110. So quick shock index aside, we've got a shock index of 1.1, so potentially sick patient here, and the patient's tachycardic. You get a 12 lead like any good medic would, Lily, and you see a wide complex, regular tachycardia, and your new attendant, we just talked to some of the new employees downstairs and you've got a gung-ho uh, knee up on your truck and they bring you the EKG over and they say, hey, 
we need to give some amiodarone. So what should give you pause? You just answered the right. question, rate of 110. Right. And that's where we really can get into trouble with hyperkalemia versus VT. And that's that's a, there's a great Alma 2 lecture out there on YouTube about this. I don't want to copy Dr. Matu's lecture because, number one, I can't come close to living up to it. Number two, he sums all this up beautifully. But the point or some of the main points that he hits on, number one, is that 110, while it's tachycardic, should at least give you pause to consider hyperkalemia. And when you do consider hyperkalemia, you have to look at the width of the QRS. That's going to be one of the keys here. So if I tell you in this case, the EKG that your attendant brings you over, Lily, has a QRS that is 210 milliseconds. Now, I don't know what 210 milliseconds is off the top of my head. Very I, wide. It's wide. It's very <laughs> wide. But as as does as he does in all of his lectures, Dr. Matu brings it back to from the esoteric to the logical. If you're bigger than one big box, that's much wider than VT typically should be. So if you're bigger than one big box, you should really think hyperkalemia, especially if you have an 88-year-old with general weakness, vomiting, poor PO intake. That's a concerning clinical patient. It may not fit our protocol exactly, but if you're wider than that, that one big box, you definitely should really have your antenna up for hyperkalemia and move away from amiodarone. So any rate less than 20, any QRS greater than 200 and 200 milliseconds is one big box, should stop you in your amiodarone tracks. And even if you don't treat for hyperkalemia, and maybe it's not a perfect patient for our protocol, there's a difference in not treating for hyperkalemia and giving this patient amiodarone. And I'll let Dr. Dixon have the, uh, the punchline here. What happens when we give this patient amiodarone? Yeah, it becomes an M&M case. If Lily would have stepped into the bear trap, the trap said trap would have closed around, fractured her ankle, made a nasty gash. I mean, these are, these are sick patients. And I think that a lot of times as clinicians, we want to go out there and fix things, but we can really get into trouble. We've talked about it on the podcast about early anchoring in on a diagnosis. So we need to do something and treat, but do we necessarily need to do it right now? I would argue on this patient opening gambit, I put full security and pads on the patient in case I have to cardiovert them while I'm sorting it out in my head going, wait a minute, this looks wide or looks wide wide and fast and until your brain can catch up put some pads on the patient and be ready to cardiovert get, them get some access and then have a look at the 12 lead and go back and say what is the clinical what's the story behind this does it really sound like vt well i'll just go back to what casey said does this sound like vt to anybody is this sudden onset is this a collapse is this something that the patient was fine then they weren't fine no this is a little old lady with decreased PO that's felt worse and worse over the last couple of days. So that says electrolytes, that says sepsis, that says, you know, Underlying something insidious, medical, medical conditions, mm -hmm. not an acute vascular or electrical event. And, you know, some fluids, maybe a little fluids, yeah. may, you know, because there's a big difference in initiating a hyperkalemia protocol versus watching and collecting information and asking a good history and SNAP saying this is wide complex tachycardia amiodarone that's that's really the old sort of acls approach 
Now, let's just say that you, and we'll get into the ACLS approach and why that fails us here, but by taking an extra step and asking the patient, hey, what medical problems do you have? Pulling up their sweater or their shirt and seeing the fistula in their left or right upper extremity, now you've got a generalized weakness patient with poor PO intake, vague symptoms, a history of end-stage renal disease, and a wide, very wide complex EKG. Where's your treatment go now? Hyperkalemia, calcium, then albuterol, then some bicarb, and you repeat the AKG, and miraculously, your QRS is now 150. So leading us into ACLS was not made for toxin, ingestion, end-stage renal disease patients. ACLS was made for patients with acute coronary occlusions and electrical abnormalities that were secondary to primary cardiac events. It was not made for overdoses, tox patients, ESRD patients. So going back to Von Williams and sodium channel blocker one, beta blocker two, potassium channel blockers three, calcium channel blockers four, amiodarone is basically um, all of the above for yeah. Von Williams. It's all of the above, right? And we've now we've got a poison sodium channel. And what are we doing? We're adding more poison. and. I mean, we've all seen, we've seen this in M&M cases. We've seen this happen clinically that we jump on something thinking it's VT. And in fact, we make the patient worse with the medication. I think it'd, it'd be hard to argue. I don't think Casey would argue at all that sometimes electricity is much, much safer than some of the anti-dysrhythmics we give. Let's put it this way. If you shocked this patient, it would do nothing. If you give this patient amiodarone, it'll kill them. Or they're going to arrest. You're going to have to save them with your calcium and your bicarb. Who in their right mind would give a sodium channel blocker to a patient with poison sodium channels? Would you give a sodium channel blocker to a TCA overdose? And if we had the wrong diagnosis to begin with, are they going to do that? And my answer to that, because I have seen it in case reviews, is no. Right? If you went down the VT train and you gave amiodarone, the patient arrested, in your mind, it would be screaming, you know, their, their VT just degenerated. I need to do more shocks, more, more medications going down that road. I, I tend to think that people kind of sometimes stay on that same road. It's very hard once you go down it to take a step back and say, wait a minute, am I on the right road? Whereas if you would have started with electricity, you shock it and nothing happens. Generally, when you shock VT and you, you sink it and shock it, does it work or not work, Lily? It works. It works. It works, right? So that's your cue, right? You would shock it. It would go right back. You'd say, wait a minute. I've done this 4,300 other times, and it worked every time. Maybe that's the pause you get to step back and go, maybe this is something else. Boy, it does look a little slow, and gosh, it looks really wide. Let me, let me, finish, let me finish hammering on here because it's a beta blocker as well. So let's talk about brash again. That B in brash is bradycardia. That A in brash is AV block with AV blocking meds. So you're going to give a beta blocker to a to a potential, you know, beta block patient. Now I know that for us to get to VT, the patient probably needs to be tachycardic. Just the point being is that amiodarone is super messy, and these tox and these ESRD patients can have really messy uh, electrolyte milieus. And it's just, we need to be really sure that we're primary cardiac before we're putting in a calcium channel beta blocker, potassium channel blocker, sodium channel blocker, all in one. Yeah, I couldn't mix. agree more. And I think the, the proof's in the pudding, right? We would not be sitting here talking about it and going back and forth to these horrible cases if both of us had not seen them, had seen this clinically. Right? This is an error that does occur. And, and realistically, if you go to the evidence and you look at the effectiveness of amiodarone, and I'll, we can throw lidocaine in the mix, you know, our antiarrhythmics for 
wide complex tachycardias for, for VT and, and stable VT, our success rate with those drugs, and there's several different variations on these studies. I'm not going to go through each one, but just to say globally, the success rate's well under 50%. It's pregnancy D, so harmful in pregnancy, stays in the system for days, weeks, and significant thyroid and pulmonary effects. It's just a dirty drug that we should really have paused every time that we pull it out and consider it beyond the, the cardiac arrest patient where it's part of the ACLS bundle and we, we know it's in there from you know the ACLS standpoint. But if we're in an ESRD patient, if we're in a tox patient, it should be relegated to the drawer. It's just not one that should, should, should come into play. Let's review one more time for the listeners out there and give a little bit of preview of coming attractions. I think it's always good to do on the podcast. Tell the listeners out there, the, both the NCHD listeners who need to know this and the other folks out there who are thinking about maybe, huh, should we have a hyperkalemia protocol? Lily, tell them again, just very nuts and bolts time, what are the MCHD indications and dosing for entering the hyperkalemia protocol? And then we'll wrap it up. Simply clinical concern and ECG changes. Okay. So when we say clinical concern, just to review again, we have to have some thought that the patient is a higher pretest probability for having hyperkalemia. So in-stage renal disease, diabetic ketoacidosis, the undifferentiated agitation patients with metabolic acidosis like crush, rhabdomyolysis, plus the EKG changes. And remember that these EKG changes can occur in sequence. They sometimes can jump and go from kind of concerning to really bad. So it's any of these EKG changes in any combination. What are those? What are we looking for? Widen QRS, peak T waves, bradycardia. Or widen QRS with bradycardia. Or peak T waves with bradycardia. Or peak T waves and widen QRS. So really any combination there, that's an and or in that sentence. We're saying again, which med goes first? Calcium, calcium, calcium. Calcium I mean, first. You got to think calcium in this. And, you know, I'll go back to something that Casey said. You know, no test is perfect. No, it has, you have to have both the EKG changes. But is it is it 100% perfect? It's not in our in our data in our paper that's coming out. It's about fifty percent. I mean, and, and it, it follows the ED data that the EKG is a tool in this diagnosis, but it's not one hundred percent sensitive. So what you doctor, have to put it? Yeah, and what Dr. Dixon means there, and just to to flesh that out a little bit, is that if you have an EKG that looks hyperkalemic, even in a high pretest probability patient, it's going to predict hyperkalemia about half the time. So it's an imperfect tool, but you have to remember we don't have an iStat, we don't have stat labs and and uh, BMPs on the truck. So we have to use the the best tool that we have which is which is the EKG. So in our data set, we looked at all of our non-cardiac arrest hyperkalemic treatment patients over the first 3 years. This is not a huge number. Uh, this paper will hopefully be out sometime in the next couple months if we're if we're lucky and the reviewers are kind. But just for preview of coming attractions, we were able to treat these patients with really minimal side effects, and half of them had hyperkalemia when they got to the ED. This is pretty concerning, which from a glass half full standpoint, these are critically ill patients. We know from prior data that earlier treatment leads to better outcomes and leads to less cardiac arrest. So we were pretty pleased with the fact that, yeah, not all of these patients actually had hyperkalemia, but at least a, 
half of them did, and those are sick patients. How about our medics in the protocol application? Exactly. I was just going to give a kudos to our medics is that 90% of the time they were able to put this together and say, clinical suspicion, aha, have the EKG changes and treat it. So the protocol adherence was incredible here. And, and just for the, you know, for the research-oriented folks listening out there, how did we determine that? We looked at all of these cases where non-arrest patients were treated with the hyperkalemia protocol. We pulled their EKGs, we pulled their narrative and their medical history, and independent reviewers, physician and medic, looked at the cases and said, are these hyperkalemic EKG changes as defined by the protocol, yes or no? Did the patient have clinical concern as defined by the protocol, yes or no? And we hit the mark over 90% of the time, right at 90% of the time. That's pretty really awesome. Good, really good result. And then lastly, what any medical director is concerned about when they roll out a new protocol, did we see any harm here? And there were no tachyarrhythmias after treatment. There were no cardiac arrest after treatment. We looked at ED potassium values as sort of our outcome piece of this data. Did we find hyperkalemia on the patients when they got to the ED? And we did about half the time when they were treated in the protocol. We're giving them calcium along with albuterol and bicarbonate. So there's potassium shifters there. Like Lily said, did we see any hypokalemia? And the answer is yes. We saw one patient out of our almost 50. So 2%. Right 2%. And the potassium was, I think, 2.8 or 2.9. So how would you describe that one, doctor? A nothing burger. Yeah, I would, I would be uh, a little more precise and say clinically insignificant, but not impactful to the patient there was no arrhythmia or hypotension or, or right. decompensation there's, there's no patient oriented outcome as dr patrick said the ones we're worried about are new dysrhythmia shock worsening of their clinical condition not of a lab value so this is a this is a combination of a couple topics that really i've been wanting to talk about in some way shape or form thank you lily for bringing this to me and and really te kind of teasing together and and marrying these two topics of our hyperkalemia protocol and our outcomes, along with sort of the dangers of amiodarone in that borderline tachycardic hyperkalemic patient, because they're not all going to be bradycardic. Some of them may be tachycardic because they may be hypoxic. They may have some pulmonary edema. They've missed dialysis, so they may be tachycardic. So we really want to make sure that we're thinking before we give amiodarone. So if you see brash and you see brash out there and you listen to, to Dr. Weingart or Dr. Farkas talk about brash, please listen. Those, those dudes are super sharp and, and they, bring, uh, they bring the goods when it comes to uh, EMS and emergency medicine education. But remember that we should already, already recognize that patient here at MCHD and we should be treating them because they're renal failure, they're bradycardic, they're in shock, so they are the definition of an unstable, wide complex EKG patient that should get some calcium at the very least, along with some albuterol and, and maybe some bicarb. Brash again, bradycardia, renal failure, AV blockers and AV block, shock, and hyper-K. That's the definition of our hyperkalemia protocol. Beware of wide complex regular tachycardias that are greater than 200 milliseconds especially when they're in that 100 to 120 range, that should sound the hyper-K alarm and you should absolutely stop in your amiodarone tracks and try not to have the clean kill in this patient. Make sure you're thinking about their clinical risk factors. And, you know, anytime you see a rate less than 120, hyper-K should probably be number one for your wide complex tachycardias. 
VT should be probably number seven it should. or number I, eight. I, I think that's one of the most important things that I got out of this cast, guys. I think it's terribly important to say it's not an uncommon error to make, uh, and I think can't be said enough to just stop yourself and take pause, set up a good safety net, put the, put the defib pads on, and then take a minute to walk through the case and say, could this be hyperkalemia? Could this be some other toxin? Because, you know, when it jumps out at you and it says, wow, that's really wide. Oh, but it's kind of slow. For so VT. no harm you in giving, no harm in giving calcium, albuterol and bicarb first. I mean, no harm is probably too strong. I never say never and I never say always, but very minimal harm in giving calcium, albuterol and bicarb first. If it is hyperkalemia, what will you see? Lily, you know it. You'll see that narrowing. You'll see it work. If you give it to VT, it won't change it, but it won't hurt it. So calcium first, amiodarone stinks for lots of reasons. Not that we're not going to use it, just try not to cause harm with it. And if they're unstable and they're tachycardic, what do they get? They get syncardioverted every time. They're going to get electricity. Electricity. And that, it, and it, it never works. fails. <laughs> it works. And if it fails, you probably need to get out your calcium. Because yeah, if it you, fails, it failed for a reason. It failed because you're, <laughs> you're shocking sinus stack yeah. or, or, or something. Or you're shocking. <laughs> right. Or a tox. Rock. Yeah, or shocking a tox. So yeah. then, then you can go to calcium and you're going to be okay. So this one to me, again, I'm proud of this one. Thank you, Lily, for bringing it to us. I, I, this is a, a great topic that, that really pairs up some of our protocols, some of our data, some of the great EMS and emergency medicine education that's out there. We will absolutely link the brash information from MCRIT will uh, link Dr. Matu's amiodarone hyperkalemia lecture, which is awesome, and I admittedly uh, stole quite a bit from. He's a, a legend for a reason. Uh, so if you have questions or concerns or ideas for future casts, please email us, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, leave us a YouTube review. We appreciate it. Only five stars, though. If you think we're four stars, send us some feedback. We'll fix your concerns and we'll raise your review to five-star level. We only like the five-star reviews. We're sensitive and we have uh, uh, really we have a lot of feelings. So, so Dr. Slobis, that's my new saying with you, Casey. Dr. Slobis is all about the five things. Casey is all about the five stars, guys. Yeah, fair enough. Five stars. Fair enough. Only Thank five. You. Thank you all for listening. As always, we'll be back again with another episode in a couple weeks. Have a great rest of your day. Have a great day, guys. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.